morning. If you've got a Bible, I would love for you to make your way to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, and we're going to look at verses 22 through 41 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew racks, and uh, I believe our passage is on page 910. And if both of those methods fail, you can follow along in the bulletin. Um, But if you would read along with us, how many of you watched the Super Bowl last Sunday? Yeah, there's about as much excitement in this room as there was on that field, right? Um, if you watched the Super Bowl, you, you probably heard Jim Nance and Tony Romo, who were the announcers, um, you probably heard them uh, talk about the many records that were broken. The 53rd Super Bowl uh, had both the longest punt and the lowest score in Super Bowl history. It was a real barn burner. Um, it made soccer seem interesting. <laughs> There were a lot of records set last Sunday, and there was also a record set in the service last Sunday, and there aren't any official stats on this, but um, I had more people talk to me about the sermon after the service last week, or write me, or email me, or text me um, about the sermon than for any other sermon that I preached, and so I set a personal record last week. Apparently, the, uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower his people, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this day and age, and the side trail that I went down on speaking in tongues is of some interest. Um, I, who would have thought? So, so that afternoon, I, I was thinking about many comments and, uh, and, and mostly, mostly comments, not many critiques, but um, conversations that I have. I was, I was thinking about that, and, uh, and I, I discerned three things. In, in all seriousness. First, people are genuinely curious and want to know what the Holy Spirit's role is in this day and age. Secondly, uh, there's a fair amount of confusion about all of this. And I think a lot of that has to do with the place where we live, particularly. And then thirdly, Presbyterians and those of us in the Reformed world have not done the best job addressing this subject. I think the reason why that sermon generated so much feedback is we haven't given the Holy Spirit and his ministry among us and his work through us the attention that it deserves. And so I had an idea. On February 24th, I'm going to take a one-week break from our series in Acts, and I'm going to preach a topical sermon on the present ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to email me your questions between now and then. And so email me questions that you have about the person, work, and ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit, and I'll try to interact with those and work those into the sermon on the 24th. Of course, I can't guarantee that I'll be able to answer all of them, um, but we'll try to hit the big ones. And so my email is jason at Christ Presbyterian. <laughs> no, my email's in the bulletin. Uh, this week it'll say under the Acts graphic uh, what the email is, jeremy at christpresbyterian.church. But uh, between now and then, if you have questions, I had a great email this week with a lady and uh, with some questions about what I had said, other things that that had spurred 
Um, things like that. If you have questions, email me, and uh, I'll try to do the best I can to interact. Today, though, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, right in the middle of the Apostle Peter's sermon that he was preaching on the day of Pentecost. And so again, it's Acts chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 22. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read God's Word. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word remains forever. Your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and your word pierces between bone and marrow, joint and sinew. It judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Your word works in a way that is, uh, that is miraculous, that when the Spirit empowers the living word and, and you work through the reading and preaching of your word, uh, you tell us that it doesn't return void that it always accomplishes the purposes that you intend in that moment. And so, God, do a work this morning as, uh, as we read your holy word, your living word, and as I seek to faithfully preach from it. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Acts two twenty two. this is God's holy word. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. May God write his word upon our hearts. Friends, the gospel changes everything. 
The gospel changes everything. I was talking to the uh, folks in the intro to CPC class about one of my favorite verses, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. There Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel takes those who are enslaved to sin and sets them free. The, the gospel takes enemies of God and makes them his friends. The gospel takes people from death to life, from darkness to light. The gospel changes everything. And that was the point of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. When we, when we strip away everything else, that was the, the point of this sermon. So when Peter began to preach... We looked at this last week. When Peter began to preach, he reminded them that the prophet Joel predicted that day would come. Joel, in, in his writing, predicted that God would unleash and pour out the Holy Spirit and that people would be saved. We ended, or we began this week with verse 22. We ended last week with verse 21, which says, And it shall come to pass, this is Joel's words prophesying what's happening here, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Joel predicted this, this miraculous event where God would unleash the power of the Spirit and people would call upon Christ and be saved. Joel predicted salvation, but Jesus accomplished salvation. And I love what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, the best way to understand Pentecost, that's this event that's happening, this, this event that bridges Old Covenant with New Covenant, this bridge that inaugurates uh, God's dealings with his people so that the Spirit of God is no longer just in our midst, but he is living and active and at work with every person who believes in his Son. That's Pentecost, and, and Ferguson says, the best way to understand Pentecost is not through the Old Testament prediction, but through the New Testament fulfillment. The best way to understand Pentecost is not through Joel, but through Jesus. And so Peter began this sermon referencing Joel, but he quickly transitioned to Jesus. Why did he move from Joel to Jesus? Because there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved than through Jesus. This sermon that, pre that, that Peter is preaching here, this sermon that, that is given to us in Acts 2, this sermon is a gospel sermon. And this sermon today, from my lips, a gospel sermon. And so I think you can make the case that uh, Peter's sermon has three points. Uh, they're not alliterated like mine are. Um, but he has three points, and so just taking our cues from Peter, I have three thoughts that I want you to consider this morning um, from the verses that we've read. First, the gospel is God's plan. The gospel is God's plan in all its parts and all its particulars. The gospel is God's plan. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel? We, we, I, I've used that word many times already in this sermon. We, we talk as a church sort of in shorthand about being a church that exalts Christ and is centered or focused on the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is God's good news for us. The very word gospel means good news. 
It's good news that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The apostle Paul says, I delivered unto you what was of first importance. What's the first important thing, the most important thing? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel message. It's the greatest news that you will ever hear. You remember back in the day, I don't know if they still do this, but Publishers Clearinghouse would uh, come to someone's door and they would have that four-foot check. And they would uh, somehow, I guess, if you filled out your thing in the magazine and turned it in and signed it, you know, and uh, sent it back in, you had a chance of winning Publishers Clearinghouse. I mean, that's pretty good news. Was it Ed McMahon? Yeah. Ed McMahon, when he would show up on your doorstep, right with that big check. That's good news. This is better news. That Christ died for our sins. And what I want you to understand is that was always God's plan from the very beginning. So imagine, imagine if you were a first century Jew. This is written in about the year 61 A.D., so imagine if you were living in that time and you had heard the prophecies and predictions of a Messiah. And along came a man named Jesus who claimed to be the long-awaited Messiah. You had been hearing and you had been taught from the writings of Joel and others about this long-awaited Messiah, someone who would come and deliver you as God's people. And along comes this man, Jesus, who claims to be that long-awaited Messiah. He claims to be God in flesh. But then this, this man who claimed to be the Messiah was killed like a common criminal. You'd think, surely that can't be part of God's plan. And so Peter understood their struggle to believe that this gospel work of Jesus was part of God's plan. And so listen to what he said. This Jesus, who you saw do mighty works, wonders, and signs, this Jesus that you crucified, you know, he's speaking to the, Jewish, the Jews gathered. You crucified him by handing him over to the hands of lawless men. Those are the Romans. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans who actually drove the nails and thrust the spear? Was it the Jews who cried out in bloodlust for his death? Was it Judas who betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver? Or was it you? Or was it me? Or was it God who predestined his death from the foundation of the world? And the answer to all of those questions is yes. Yes. Jesus went to the cross for me and because of me. He went to the cross for you and because of you, and yet it was always God's plan. The gospel was always God's plan. His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, always the plan. A couple of years ago, Kimbo and I uh, went with some friends on a vacation to the Caribbean. And this was sort of one of those bucket list vacations that we had been thinking about for decades and, and wanting to go on, and, and we've been talking about for years uh, we were really excited about it. So we made plans for months. We charted our course. We scheduled our days down to the very minute, at least I did, to the chagrin of my wife. We, we made reservations in certain places. We, we had a plan. 
It was a foolproof plan until we got there. And things happened that were beyond our control. Uh, we were on a boat. Our boat had some issues. It had some issues because I ran into a coral reef and damaged the propeller, but it had issues. Um, our, our boat had some issues. Uh, it rained on days that we weren't expecting. We had plans to go to this place and do this thing, and then, and then a front came out of nowhere, and it rained. Businesses that we thought would be open were closed, so we planned to go eat at this place or do that thing. And so several times, we had to change our plans. And I've talked to many people who think that Jesus' death was a change in God's master plan. They think that God sent his son to save his people, which he did. But then Judas, the Jews, and the Romans got in the way. They, they, they misunderstand uh, John chapter 1, beginning around verse 10, that he came unto his own, and his own received him not, right? He came to his own people to fulfill prophecy. He came to, to redeem and restore his people, and yet his own people rejected him, and so, and so God went to plan B. What I want you to understand is this gospel work, this good news, was always God's plan. It wasn't plan B. Jesus' death and resurrection, which is our good news, was always God's plan. It was because of me. It was because of you. It was because of the Jews. It was because of the Romans. It was because of Judas. We all played a part. But Peter clearly tells us that, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So it's part of God's plan. The second point in Peter's sermon, and the second thing that I want you to consider, is that it is the gospel that gathers God's people. The gospel gathers God's people. That's a bit of a tongue twister. The gospel gathers God's people. You, uh, you probably don't know this, but every year, Preaching Magazine puts out a list of the top 20 preachers of the year. It's, it's sort of like people's sexiest man of life for men of the cloth. I'm kidding, but I'm not. It's, it's not like people's sexiest man of life, but they do actually publish a list of the top 20 preachers of the year. And uh, it's mostly based on nickels and noses, Right? That's what we say, and that's church speak, based on nickels and noses. Which pastor has the largest church? Which pastor performed the most baptisms? Which church built the biggest building? And I've often wondered if that list were published in the first century, if Peter or Paul would have made that list. You know, it's hard to top Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. If we're talking about measurable results... It's hard to top this sermon. This has to make Preaching Magazine's list. 3,000 conversions and baptisms in one day. That, that's not a preacher fish story. Right? On Tuesdays when we gather for staff meeting and we're going over and those attendance pads that you fill out and there's a database of names that we keep and we always talk about where, how many people were here and sometimes you know, on a Sunday Sarah will say, oh, it's kind of low attendance that day. Uh, what did you think there was? And I was like, oh, there, there had to be. This, you know, we preachers tend to exaggerate. Right? There's at least 500 people in here today. At least that's what I'm going to write down on Tuesday. Um, this is not an exaggeration. It's not a fish story. 
God saved 3,000 people on one day. Kind of makes me wonder what his stats were for the year. I mean, if that's one day, what did he, what did he end up with? Peter's sermon checked off all the boxes. Personal engagement, clear exposition, Christ-exalting, gospel-focused, and he gave an altar call to boot. Did you notice, and I'm being serious with this question, did you notice that Peter drew them in as he addressed them? It's kind of easy to overlook. In verse 22, as, as he's sort of working his way and transitioning from Joel to Jesus, he says, men of Israel. By verse 29, what does he call them? Brothers. He, he's now identifying with them as a son of Israel. Here's what he's doing. He's conveying that the gospel work of Jesus is as much for him as it is for them. So I talked to my parents. Uh, I've, I'm thankful for this, that I've got a really good relationship with my parents. And we'll talk a few times a week. And and there are certain times that we've kind of fallen into a pattern. And Monday, when my dad is driving to work in the mornings, he uh, works in Oklahoma City. He'll on his way to work, he'll he'll call me usually, and and, and you know inevitably he'll say, "Well, how was church yesterday? H- how did it go?" Uh, he'll say, "Were there mass conversions?" <laughs> so I say, "No," but there was lots of wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's just kind of this dance that we do. When, I, when I'm thinking about the sermon on Monday, sometimes I think it was good. Sometimes I think, meh, I preached better. It didn't, it didn't come out the way I intended. But here, here's kind of where I rest and where I have confidence. That God works through his word regardless of how good my words were. Now, Peter's sermon was a great sermon. But it wasn't his powerful oratory that brought about conversion. It was the power of the gospel. And God uses the power of the gospel to gather his people. Sometimes he works through a stellar sermon, and sometimes he works through a less than stellar sermon. I'm reminded of the old evangelist from the 1800s, Gypsy Smith, who said the gospel is so powerful that you can shout its words through the bunghole of a barrel and God will call people to salvation. It's not about the context. It's not about the gift of the preacher, thank God. It's about the power of the gospel, that God uses the power of the gospel to gather people. And we see it here. It's a good sermon, but it's not a great sermon. 3,000 conversions. One of the great things about Peter's sermon is that he connects the promise that God made in Genesis 15 and 17 to the message of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so in Genesis, God said, I will establish, talking to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and between your offspring after you to be an eternal covenant to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. And in verse 39, Peter picks up on that promissory language. He captures uh, the language from Genesis 15 as well as Isaiah 57, and he says this promise, this promise that God is fulfilling, it is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. God works through the gospel. Why? Because he promised to. He promised to. 
He promised that he would work through the gospel, that he would call those who were far off and he would draw them near, that he would, that he would work uh, through generations. I think what makes the promise even more astounding is that God fulfilled it in the very people who killed his son. The people who were converted are the same people that twice earlier in this sermon, Peter says, you killed him. You. You crucified him. You handed him over to lawless men. His blood is on your hands, and yet you were far off and he's brought you near. God promised to make us the least deserving his people. That's why we have to identify with Judas. We have to identify with Peter. Peter, the one preaching this, look, he didn't have a stellar record. A month and a half earlier, he's denied vehemently following Jesus. Cursed and said, I don't know him. We have to identify with Judas, identify with Peter, identify with the Jews, identify with the Romans. See ourselves as the least deserving. He went to the cross for us and because of us, and yet the gospel in God's plan takes those who are far off like us and makes them near. Here's the final thought. God provided the means of gospel salvation. So we've got the gospel is God's plan. Through it, he gathers his people. And in it, he has given us provision. And the provision for salvation is repentance and faith in Jesus alone. So what happened when they heard this gospel message? It says they were cut to the heart. Right? When they heard this gospel message, again, it's a great sermon, but it isn't the sermon so much as the power of the gospel. When they heard it, they were cut to the heart, and they said, brothers, what shall we do? And that's the question that every person must ask. When confronted with the perfection of Jesus, that he went to the cross for us and because of us, and that he has offered salvation to us, each of us must ask, what do I do with this? What shall I do? Nothing. You can't do anything. They ask, what shall I do? Well, you've done enough. There's nothing else you can do. Jonathan Edwards famously said, the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. So what do I, what do I contribute to the work of salvation? The sin. That's the ingredient that you add. What do I do? Nothing. Except repent and believe in the message of the gospel. And while this passage doesn't draw it to the surface, so many others do, that even repentance and faith are a gift of God. When, when John came preaching the gospel, he called people to repent. That was his calling card. So, so different preachers have different calling cards. There's one down in Jason's hometown of Houston, Smiley. Pastor's the largest church in America. And when he, his calling card is that every, every time he begins a sermon, he asks people to stand up and hold their Bible up. I don't remember the mantra, they, but you know it. You've seen it on TV, right? This is my Bible. It is what it says I, I am, what it says I am. I do know it, actually. I've watched him a few times. Every preacher's got a calling card, right? Every preacher has that hook they keep coming back to. For John the Baptist, it was repent. What about Paul? When he preached the gospel, he called people to have faith. He called people to believe. And those aren't, those aren't different provisions. They're simply different sides of the same coin. 
Repentance and faith always go hand in hand. And so when Jesus preached the gospel, he shows us in Mark 1, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. What do you do? That's the question. When confronted with the message of the gospel, what do you do? Repent and believe. Not just once, moment by moment. Now, we see actual conversions here, people who had never yet repented of their sins, who had never believed in Christ. But those of us who at some point have believed in Christ, we continue to come to Jesus by the power of the gospel in repentance and faith. Uh, time, time doesn't permit this morning, we're going to come to this later, uh, because I know it's going to come up in the book of Acts later, to, I want to explore this connection at some point uh, between repentance, faith, and baptism, right? because uh, Peter says, they, they say, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. It, that's important for us to kind of drill down into and talk about the connection between baptism and faith, but it's going to come up several times in Acts, and so we will we'll address it. But here's what I want to leave you with. God's provided the way of salvation. It's the only way. He's provided the way of forgiveness, and it's always been the same. There's no other plan. There's no other plan. There's no other way. When, uh, when, when we, in the, in the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, when we commit to joining a church, uh, here in a number of weeks, you'll have folks who have decided to make this church their home church. They'll stand before you, and I'll ask them some questions. And uh, one of the questions I will ask, the second question, I believe, is do you now receive and rest upon Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel? We receive, we rest upon Christ alone. And so if you're weighed down by sin, God promises forgiveness. If you're far off, he brings you near. Even as, as, as those who are uh, Christians, we constantly put our faith and rest in Jesus. We never move beyond the gospel. We never graduate from the good news because the gospel continues to change everything. It changes everything. We get to feast on the work of the gospel now as we come to the table. And so let's pray with that in mind. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the clarity of Peter's words that they were, uh, they, they, they focused on Christ. They, they went from Joel to Jesus and, um, and made much of Jesus and, uh, and the work of the gospel. And it's so clear that even the very people who were responsible for his death were offered forgiveness and brought near. They were cut to the heart. They repented, believed, and were, were identified as one of your, your children. And that same good news gospel message is for each of us here today. Regardless of what we've done, how, how bad our past may look to us, Christ has given his life for us. Or maybe there are those who think that their life has looked pretty good. Help them see they need Jesus as much as anyone. And so now feed us on Jesus, mm. his body and blood, his death and life for us as we come to the table. Do that work. Amen. Amen.